I mean, you can continue standing if you want to, but there's really not a purpose for it at this point. So uh, for those of you who are guests, we have been going through the gospel according to Mark for a very, very long time. And believe it or not, we're getting close to the end, but but probably not as close as you think. Um, Noah asked me today, he was like, so how long do you think we'll be going? My guess is February. We will finish in February. Uh, you will not see, well, I mean, I'm sure we'll see another birthday, um, but it won't be mine. <laughs> it will not be mine. Um, so we're reading through the Gospel of Mark and talking in detail about it. And by the way, if you have a suggestion uh, for a very, very short book afterward, that would be nice. I'm all about the short now, okay? And Mark's not real short, so that should give you an idea of what I mean by, uh, excuse me, not real long, so that should give you an idea of what I mean by short. So if you would turn in uh, the Tapestry Bibles or in your Bible or watch this behind me, we're going to be reading the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, uh, verses um, 53 through 65. I believe in the Tapestry Bibles, it's page 721. And I can't find it in my Bible for some reason. I keep on flipping from like Revelation to Genesis. There we go. Okay. This is what the Word of the Lord says. Uh, And Adam, have you got it? I saw you had to get coffee. That's important. Um, Could you do me a favor? I'm sorry. You guys don't know this. I'm I'm working on some schooling. I'm in the midst of some schooling myself. I have to record these sermons for this. I forgot to press the record button on the video. Um, Don't worry. That doesn't go anywhere. Uh, If you don't want your image online, don't worry. It's not going to be. It's because we've had recordings mess up and I just take the audio from it. Thank you, buddy. This is the word of the Lord. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests. Now, the they here, if you look back, is the group that came with Judas to grab Jesus. So these were people who represented the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And uh, some of the religious leaders were there with them. But it was a group that specifically went to get Jesus. And they got him at a uh, hill called Gethsemane uh, that we talked about earlier. But he was praying there, leading, you know, praying, leading a super rebellion by praying. That's always dangerous. Actually, it should be. But... Um, and they get him there. And so they've gotten him in the middle of the night, and uh, that's the group. So they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could, could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple in three days. uh, Excuse me, will destroy this man-made temple. And in three days, we'll build another not made by man. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? Uh, What is this testimony that, that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some men began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist and said, prophesy. And the guards took him up and and beat him. Now, guys, we're going to talk a little differently, but I'm going to give you a little bit of of situational uh, awareness on this. Uh, Because some of us in the room might be like me, and I was not raised in church. I knew generally the story of of Christ, but not specifically. I, I did know a few things. But quite often, you know, Jesus and and Old Testament stories would get mixed up together because I didn't know that, you know, the Bible was a historical record. And so there are events taking place 600 and 700 years before this. I just thought "Eh, it just kind of all happened. Uh, But basically, Jesus has been followed for uh, three years by more than 12 people. But there are 12 people that are known as the apostles. At this time, he probably has... Eh, roughly 200 to a maximum 400 people that are following him but think of him like like a political excuse me a popular um not necessarily a political figure but philosophical figure at the time okay at at one point he probably had about twenty five thousand people who were following him so he booms up and then it just kind of comes down and it comes down because he starts saying things that people find difficult because oh we're so different from them we always like the difficult things we're not so shallow as them to just like it when people say something nice to us Uh, jesus is doing these amazing healings he's doing these amazing things and people are like this is the one this is the one this is the one and it just booms up and then he goes and by the way i expect you to follow me and to give your life up (laughs) and it goes (laughs) so at the end like I say, maybe as much as 400, but truthfully closer to, uh, to 200, maybe less. And there were 12 apostles who were his representatives. One of those apostles was a guy named Peter. And so he is praying with these 12 apostles. And, uh, and he's praying with them in Gethsemane. And the uh, religious leaders of the day come and they, they take him from where he's praying. And everybody scatters. Now, for those of you who are last, uh, were here last week, my favorite part of the story was, uh, was the, the young man, and I cannot say it any other way because I'm Southern, but the young man uh, who, who was caught by his tunic and he ran away naked, or naked as you guys would pronounce it, but uh, it was probably Mark. But the only person who follows Jesus at this point is Peter. Now, he's not brave enough to be like, I'm with him. But he follows him. And it's a little weird for us because we're not used to, you know, just strangers walking into our homes. But that's what happens here. Okay. Now, this is one of the two locations where this might have happened. This is uh, one of two locations for Caiaphas, who was one of the high priests. Um, And so to give you an idea, obviously, the windows would not have been there at that time. (laughs) This is a modern. I mean, it's the same building. It's just a modern picture of it because they didn't have cameras back then. Otherwise, we would have lots of photos of Jesus, you know, because everybody would be like on their Facebook going, hey, I'm with Jesus. So. This is kind of what's happening. Jesus would have been up probably. I have a pointer. Okay, you see where the windows are? That's where Jesus would be. And, and Peter probably would have been down in, in, inside. And it would not have been anything for him to just walk in because uh, you know, they didn't have TV. They didn't have books. This was huge excitement. Not that Peter was just going there for that. But there would have been a monstrous crowd there. Think of uh, if a car wreck happens. What do people do? Yeah, I was in MEJ's. 
this week, uh, doing you know my, my work as in answering emails, doing the organizational stuff of the church, and preparing for the sermon. And suddenly, uh, there's, a, there's a place where uh, these cops hang out to watch for speeders. And every now and then, they'll pull somebody over in MEJs. And you could see, I mean, the baristas came out from behind the counter. Uh, some of us customers were like, what do they do? Oh, he's from Philadelphia. That's awesome. <laughs> Apparently, people in MEJs don't like people from Philadelphia. But you know how it is. Even today, if there's excitement, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but I may have every now and then in my neighborhood walked by something because it looked like something exciting was happening and pretended like I was running. None of you would ever do that. Same people back then, okay? Just like us. Peter just snuck in with everybody else because everyone was trying to find out what was happening. And what was happening was... Jesus was being railroaded. I mean, the religious leaders had come there, and they had come there not for a real trial. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it at night. This was technically uh, illegal according to the religious laws at the time. Uh, they were point blank trying to get him. And you get that from, from the Gospels here, but um, it's not uncommon for that time. See, we, we find it really easy to think of the religious leaders kind of as the bad guys. They really weren't bad guys for what they were doing. The only reason they're bad is because we now, uh, for some of us, we believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he is God. But realistically for their, uh, their culture, they were the good guys. They were just trying to protect the culture that they lived in as far as they saw it. So let's talk about that for just a little bit, okay? Uh, the Jewish leaders, the only reason this is up here, I, I do Google images all the time, and I typed in Jewish leaders, and that's, I never, Eva Longaria, I cannot pronounce her name. There we go. That's James Earl, not James Earl Jones. <laughs> oh, James, uh, Drew, where are you? He's the captain from, um, from Battlestar Galactica. James, he's the one who got me into Battlestar Galactica. James, almost? Edward James almost. There we go. I can't think. And I can't think of his name, but he's from Ocean's Eleven and Twelve and Thirteen. Okay. Only reason it's up there is I typed in Google Images for Jewish leadership, and that photo came up, and it just made me laugh. <laughs> so they were the Jewish leadership, and and as Jewish leadership, realistically, their goal was to keep power, but also it was to keep the culture safe. And the reason they were, were trying to keep the culture safe was because the Romans wanted the culture safe. And the way the Romans made sure the culture was safe was they killed any threat whatsoever. And then usually, just in case they, they might have missed somebody, they killed a lot of extra people also. The Romans were really, really good at that. We talk about this every now and then. But the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that's talked about, was Roman peace only if you were Roman. For everyone else, it was subjugation. It was peaceful. But it was only peaceful because, you know, the Roman boot was on top of your neck. So the Jewish leadership wanted to keep the peace at all costs because change was dangerous. Not like change is dangerous now at all. We never experienced that. Where people just want to kind of keep things the way they are because of the fact that, that doing something different is dangerous. It happens. Jewish leaders were doing their job. They were trying to protect their culture and the people that were a part of that culture. And to be completely honest, they had seen a lot of false messiahs before. 
Jesus was not the only one who people said this is the Messiah. And every Messiah that came represented a risk. You want something fun? Jesus was not the only only person that people had proclaimed to be the Messiah named Jesus. There was another Jesus who had been proclaimed to be the Messiah who tried to start a rebellion. And the Jewish leaders wanted to keep the status quo. Now, the status quo, it gets a negative sometimes. Some people are like, oh, the status quo is bad. That's not true. Complete and utter change all the time is scary and terrible. Okay, you guys, hopefully you know, I kind of like change here on Sunday nights. Uh, Every now and then I'll be like, hey, it's kind of an unusual night for tapestry. And some of y'all will be like, that's every week. But when you really get down to it, we have a set pattern that we just play around with a little bit. I mean, every now and then chairs are in a circle. Every now and then there's objects in the room. But let's face it, if you just walked in here one night and there were no chairs whatsoever, you'd be like, what in the world's going on? If you walked in here one night and I had just randomly thrown snakes everywhere, you'd be like, we knew Robert was from Alabama, but... <laughs> See, we, we talk about, you know, we change things, but realistically we don't change that much. If, if you walked in here and there were no bulletins around, you'd be like, something's wrong. Something's wrong. See, utter, complete change all the time is chaos, and it's scary. And the religious leaders wanted the status quo not because they were just concerned about the good old ways. No, they wanted the status quo because they were trying to protect their society. Oh, by the way, did you know there was an English band called the Status Quo? Again, Google Images, a wonderful thing. You search for status quo, you see them. Actually, the fun part of it is you see them, you know, old, my age, and, and they just look different. Some rock bands age well, some rock bands do not age well at all. And then some rock bands don't age well at all, and they look cooler because of it, okay? Rolling Stones, that is not good aging. Yes, sir, Jacob. There we go. Maybe that's what it is. I did not say they were incredibly ugly. That's very rude of you to say that. There we go. Apparently Jan has a crush on... on. (laughs) So, okay. So they were trying to keep the status quo. Because the status quo equaled safety. They weren't just picking on Jesus. To be honest, they had gone through Messiah after Messiah after Messiah who started rebellions. These Messiahs equaled danger. And so they come here for this, this trial... And they keep on throwing stuff at Jesus. He said this. He said this. He said this. He said this. And their testimony doesn't match up. And uh, the high priest keeps on looking at Jesus for him to respond. Because if he says something, then he can get Jesus. But how does Jesus respond to all these accusations? Yeah, just silence. He doesn't say anything. That's probably not hard for you. But if somebody says something about me that's wrong, I really want to defend myself. You ever, you know, jump into defense and then you realize, oh my gosh, I'm just really stupid. I'm just messing myself. Why didn't I just shut up? No, you guys never think that. I think that all the time and then I keep on talking. Uh, Every now and then my mind is going, Robert, just shut up. Kind of like what it's doing right now. And my mouth just doesn't listen. Just going, going, going. Jesus doesn't say a word. I I think he does know what's going to happen. He doesn't have to defend himself. But then we reach a point where he apparently decides he's just got to talk. 
It's the very words that he's going to say that are going to get him in trouble. Because they're trying to get him in trouble. They're trying to go, we've got enough. We've got enough to get him. But they don't. And he just stays silent. And then the high priest comes and asks this question. Ask, uh, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And the one who has just sat there and had people say terrible things about him and has just sat there just so calm, you know, sometimes we think of what was Jesus, what was done to Jesus as though he's the victim. When you were reading that scripture, did you realize how powerful his silence was there? Who seemed like the scared one? Well, I don't think it was Jesus. When I read the story, the one that's kind of shaking in his shoes are the religious leaders, the powerful ones who are like, you did this, you did this, you did it. And Jesus just... See, just because... Jesus overcame power with weakness doesn't mean he was a victim. Anyhow, the high priest asked him this question and suddenly Jesus goes from a mute <laughs> to like a little eighth grade girl. I'm sorry, ladies. That's just when I think of chatterboxes, I think of eighth grade girls. It's okay. When I think of stupid, I think of 10th grade guys. Okay, so it works out well. Uh, that is not meant to be a sexual stereotype, even though obviously it is. And I should just shut up. <laughs> Jesus goes from silence to immediately giving the high priest everything he wants. Everything he wants. Matter of fact, the high priest's response tells you that because he tears his clothes, which is a symbol of grief that's done over and over again in the Old Testament as a part of the Jewish culture where he is going, what has been said is just terrible. And he rips his clothes just like grief. Like this is one of the worst things ever. But the irony is, is he's not really grieving. He's super happy. But he needs to convey that grief. Because what he believes Jesus just said was the worst and most awful thing he possibly could say. But the problem is, is that Jesus had been wanting people to ask that question long before that. Not just for his death, but also, if you remember, he does this with his disciples. He asked the 12 apostles, the 12 that are following him to be leaders, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Looking for their response. And in that story, you hear where he says, or they say, some people think you're one of the old prophets. Some people think you are Elijah, who was like the symbol of, of the, you know, the one who speaks for God. And then Peter goes, you're the Christ. Which is the Greek word for the Messiah, which means the anointed one. In other words, the one that God is going to work through. And Jesus goes, you found this out, not by your own wisdom, but, but God has given this to you. And because of this, you are the rock. See, Jesus has been asking all along, who do you think I am? Because who we, who we say he is, is hugely, hugely important. And it was hugely important there. Jesus goes through silence over all these accusations. And the high priest finally says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus can't shut up. Because it's the question that really matters. See, he uses a word. Actually, he uses two words. Now, if you were raised in church, you've probably heard this before and you probably pick up on it. But uh, if you weren't raised in church like me, you don't pick up on a lot of this stuff. But Jesus every now and then uses these words, I am. And they have huge religious meanings. So here's the, the, the scripture where he does it. He goes, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man. He doesn't answer by saying, yes, it's me. He goes, I am. 
Now, the, the significance that comes from that is, is this. When Moses encounters God for the very first time in, in, in the form of a burning bush where, where God catches his attention. God is not a burning bush. God was catching Moses' attention through the burning bush. And, and Moses goes, hey, you're sending me back to my people who are slaves and like to throw things around. Um, you're sending me back to my people and they're going to ask, who sent you? And God says... In, in uh, Genesis three fourteen, I am who I am. And then I am becomes this code for God. It is actually kind of what Yahweh means. And Jesus uses it again and again and again. John 6, uh, 51, he says that I am the bread of life. I am that which you need for nourishment. Uh, John eight twelve, he says, I am the light of the world. See, the, the fun of this is there's double meaning there. God is the bread of life. God is the light of the world. I am. Jesus is. He's saying God at the same time, which is why in this next reference uh, in uh, John, it's John 8, 58, 58 I was going to say 51. Uh, Jesus is asked, hey, are you older than our father Abraham? And he goes, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews' response to that point is, oh my goodness, he's calling himself God. We need to kill him. Now, you and I wouldn't respond to that. If you did, if you tried to kill me every time I said I am to something, uh, that's good training. I'm never going to say I am again. Uh, but Jesus was making a statement. He was using part of the name of God to get across the fact that he was God. And the Jews recognized it. They tried to kill him. So when he uses I am at this point, the, the, the chief priest, uh, the elders, the Sanhedrin, they recognize not only is he saying he's the Messiah, but he's saying something about the fact that he is God. And that's why the high priest responds not with what he said is terrible, but what he said is blasphemy. Literally, he has said a terrible, heinous lie about the nature of God. The high priest understands what's being said there. And... For you office fans, he views Jesus as a threat at that moment. For those of you who are not office fans, you have no idea what that is. Just know it's funny. You should just laugh because of that. Because it's funny. And here's the reality. If Jesus is not Lord, then the high priest was right. Jesus was a threat. And if Jesus is Lord, then the high priest was right. <laughs> Jesus was a threat. I try to fit C.S. Lewis in as much as I possibly can to my life and, uh, and my messages. I can tell you this, every paper except for one I have written in my theological education has had a C.S. Lewis quote in it. Every paper I have written. Um, so, C.S. Lewis describes this wonderful situation. It's called the trilemma. And if you've ever seen the, uh, the dramatic, uh, dramatic chipmunk, I tried to fit it in here, but for some reason the video didn't work. Because when I hear the trilemma, all I can think of is dun, 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 because it just seems like a really dramatic word. But what it means is uh, a dilemma of three parts. Because a lot of people like to take Jesus and they want to make him into who they would like. And so a lot of people will say, oh, Jesus is like this or Jesus is like this. And during his day, a lot of people were saying, oh, Jesus is a good teacher. That's all he was. 
Jesus was just a good teacher. And he wasn't really God, but he was a good teacher. And, and uh, C.S. Lewis came back to this issue of, if you really believe that the Bible is God's word. Now, you can dismiss it if you don't believe it's God, God's word. But if you believe it's God's word, then the problem is, is that Jesus said he was God. And the Jews understood it. When he used those I am statements, they go, oh my goodness, he's saying he's God. And if, if that happened, which I believe with all my heart it did, then there's only three options. Jesus is either Lord, as in he's God. He's a liar, as in he's saying to people, I am God, when he's not God, or he's a lunatic. See, C.S. Lewis was describing that at the point. But the reality here is for the chief priest, if, if Jesus is a liar or a lunatic, then he's incredibly dangerous to Israel because he's going to start a rebellion and the Roman Empire is going to come in and they are going to smash Jerusalem. And we know they were close because in 70 AD, that's exactly what they came in and did. They came in and they smashed Jerusalem because they were fed up. If Jesus was a liar or a lunatic and and was starting this commotion, then the chief priests were right. He was a threat to Israel. But if he was Lord, while he was Israel's hope, he was also a threat to the status quo. See, the chief priests said, are you the Messiah? And all they wanted him to do was say yes, but they didn't actually want to believe that he was Messiah. Because if he is the Messiah and you believe that, then that becomes dangerous to your life. And the reason it's dangerous is because it requires change. What the world doesn't need is more people who say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And it does nothing to your life whatsoever. What quite often happens is people come into the church and they go, oh, Jesus is great, Jesus is great. And he really needs to change those people's lives. Which is why we have people going out and judging other people rather than being so busy going, Jesus is changing me, Jesus is changing me. But they don't have time to judge other people. And I'm not meaning by that some wishy-washy thing where we don't, uh, don't condemn evil. There is evil in the world that should be condemned. And truthfully, it's wrong for us not to. If you see someone being abused and you don't condemn that in the name of Jesus, the one who is the creator and sustainer of, of all of creation, that's evil. But half the time in the church, there are people that are so busy judging those outside the church or other people in the church that they never realize that if he's really Lord, that's dangerous for our lives. I started following Jesus when I was a teenager. And and I can tell you, the times I'm most scared is when I'm not scared. (laughs) Because that means I'm probably not following Jesus very well. See, he should be a threat to the status quo for us. Because of this, see, in the beginning of Scripture, in Genesis 1, when God is telling the story of of the creation of humanity, what he says is, let us, which is just a lot of fun because God is singular and us is plural. And and it's just, in my opinion, hints to the Trinity automatically. But it says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then he begins to explain what humanity should do in our image likeness see we were created to be in god's image and the problem is is so often what we do is we want to take him and make him in our image because i like people who look like me it's the people who who cause me to change that bother me some of you okay that was supposed to be funnier than it was (laughs) 
This is why I shouldn't add things that are not in the sermon and, and just go off the cuff. See, what happens quite often is in the church, isn't that a quaint church? I'm not a big fan of us having a building, but I got to say, if we could have a building like that, that'd be pretty awesome. Of course, that also is probably a hundred-year-old building, and so everything's falling apart. But I wouldn't mind a building that has that window. Oh, okay. The problem is, is that quite often in the church, we look at those outside the church and we're like, Jesus should be a threat to them. Jesus should make them change. Jesus should, should work on their lives. You need to hear Jesus. You need to change. And I do believe there's a lot of truth to that. But the problem is, is we quite often forget that he's saying it to us. See, the ones who view Jesus as a threat here were the religious leaders. A.K.A. me. Since we are a free church, i.e. we do not have some ecclesiastical hierarchy that means that I am somehow holier than you, and you can therefore be on leadership team as well as I am, that means you. Yeah, I know, and Jay, I'm pointing, I'm pointing exactly at you. I didn't mean to. I love the fact the only person I pointed at was like, that's a scary thought. I'm preaching right now. Okay. Guys, See, we take Jesus and we're like, oh, he's just talking to them. But if you really look at it, most of what he said on, hey, you're not following God, he was usually speaking to the religious people. We are the religious people of today. He did tell people who weren't religious, hey, you don't need to be doing that, but it usually came with grace and law first. Our problem, I think, is, is that and I refer to us having plastic Jesuses every now and then. But I think we have Jesuses who are plastic, that they look nice and polite, but they never, ever, ever ask anything of us at all. But the real Jesus is not plastic. He changes things. He does things like this. Uh, this is a painting of the story of, um, <clears throat> oh, goodness gracious, Zacchaeus. There we go. All I could think of was the wee little man. <laughs> Wasn't even raised in church, and I know Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Okay. Just so you know, those of you who are raised in church, you people are freaky. <laughs> okay? When I, when I first started going to church uh, in high school slash college, and I started hearing these kids' songs, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is what people in the church sing? Your music sucks. <laughs> I didn't realize they were for kids. <laughs> it's okay. But Zacchaeus is the story of Jesus changing the status quo. Zacchaeus was a tax collector for the Romans, which means he was a Jew who had betrayed his nation and was now working for the enemy. And Jesus doesn't treat him as an enemy. Instead, he treats him as a friend, an honored friend. He goes to eat at Zacchaeus' house, which is a huge honor. Do you understand why the religious leaders might view Jesus as a threat? See, it would have been okay if Jesus had just said, love your enemy, but when he really did love his enemy, that's awful. It's okay if we say that type of stuff here, but when you really do it, people are going to question whether or not you're Christian. We love to tell stories of other people giving all, but when you really do it, if your family's in church, they're going to be like, you can't give that much. What do you mean you're going to, you're going to quit your job and you're going to go work with the, the needy? That's great for other people. We pay people in church to do that. See, Jesus changed the status quo. He literally grabbed his enemy or what others should have viewed as his enemy from the tree and said, no, you're my friend that I eat with. Do you understand why the religious leaders would view Jesus as a threat? Because he was. 
That's wrong. He is. When our Jesus is not dangerous to us, not to others, it's real easy to make Jesus dangerous to others. When our Jesus is not dangerous to us, he's not the real God. He's a fake, pathetic, plastic God. And that doesn't mean that he's never going to be comfortable. He's never going to be comforting. I got news for you. Scripture says it again and again, and he lived it out as an example. When you are hurting, when you are, I keep on thinking of repressed. I'm sorry, it's the Monty Python. When you are oppressed, okay, when, when, when the world is, is pounding you down, when you have too much homework, when there's too much work for you, when you cannot stand your job, when you are hurt because the person who loves you most has betrayed you. We have a God who brings comfort. What Scripture says is he brings peace that surpasses understanding. But that doesn't mean that he is safe. It means he's good. If you read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis describes it uh, by this wonderful story where these kids basically find out that Aslan, who represents Jesus, is a lion, and they start to freak out. And, and Mrs. Beaver and Mr. Beaver go, Oh, goodness gracious, child, haven't you been listening to a word we say? And they're like, well, so is he safe? And they're like, no, he's not safe. But he's good. See, this trial was, was a sham. But the high priest asked the right question. Are you the Messiah? They just weren't ready for the change that comes with the answer. So here's my question. Who do you say that he is? And, and more importantly than that, how is that being lived out in your life? If Jesus has not been dangerous to your life recently, then you need to ask yourself, are you really following him? And again, please don't take that to mean that every day has to be an earth-shattering event. Maybe every year. Maybe sometimes the earth-shattering events he asks you to do are so, uh, so earth-shattering that maybe it's every 10 years. I don't know. I can tell you this. I was a youth minister at a mega church and was loving where I was, and God asked me to come to a bunch of Yankees. Oh, yeah, I called you Yankees. So, <laughs> I'm Confederate scum. I can live with that. So I'm going to end with this. How's Jesus dangerous to your Christmas? How's he dangerous to the way you are spending what we have turned from a celebration of the incarnation of God? And we have turned it from that. A feast day where we we feast to celebrate God. A day of religious uh, practice that reminds us to live out the life of Jesus. Where we have turned it from that to a family holiday. And I think family's wonderful and I love family. But uh, Jesus is not just about making our families better. How's Jesus dangerous to your Christmas? I know dangerous is kind of weird, isn't it? All right, could somebody help me? Yes, ma'am. Does challenge work better? Dangerous sounds negative. I, I... Push? How does he push you? Yeah, I mean, because I, 
Let's face it, we could do dangerous stuff like Jesus told me to jump off the roof. I don't think he's telling you to jump off the roof. <laughs> to be completely honest, front of the, church, front of the, the school's not that high, but if you jumped off the gym, that's bad news. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you to sacrifice more than you thought you could. Cause you to love someone that you thought you could not. Cause you to forgive the person that you were sure you could never, ever forgive. Does that make sense? All right, so before I end, does anybody have anything to add? Okay. Then my hope for you is during Advent (laughs) that you conspire to know a God who is worthy. That you conspire to not only say Jesus is your Lord, uh, but to live it out in your life. And that He changes you. And other people are changed because of what they see Him doing in you. Would you pray with me, please? Father, help us uh, to not only say that your Son is Lord, but to live it out in our lives. I pray this in His name. Amen. Guys, if you need someone to pray with, Pete and I will be in the back. Uh, Otherwise, let's sing to the one who is worthy. Please, stand and sing.